When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and uh, my guest, my good friend, Jose Nino. What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing great, Henry. Thank you for having me on again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Danny is out today. He is traveling. It is Friday at 7.45 uh, Eastern Standard Time. So, um, Jose, I wanted you to come on today, and I, and I was telling you before, just because I'm, I'm personally trying to analyze what is going on in the world right now. And I'm honestly very conflicted all the times. Um, I usually wake up feeling one way and I go to sleep feeling the other way. Um, I basically, I wake up and I'm like a completely late, like a laissez-faire uh, libertarian. Like in the morning, I'm like, oh, live and let live. We're all going to get by. Like all we need to do is just get along. And by the time I go to bed, I'm like, Man, I think the National Guard's gonna come have to come in and like start putting Warhawks in jail. And that's kind of where I'm at, and I think a lot of people are at. But before before we get into this, I wanna ask you about like your political evolution because since I've met you, um, I feel like you're you've uh kind of had a change in, in I don't know, philosophy or opinion or just like kind of an, an evolution in, in uh you know how you think about politics. But let me get your your um, take on yesterday, Joe Biden's speech. For me, that looks it's like the embodiment of what some people have been saying for some time ever, especially after January sixth, that the war on terror that marked the first decade of the 21st century is now coming home and there the permanent bureaucracy in dc is effectively declaring war on certain constituencies specifically donald trump style republicans right-wing populists even libertarians too as well people that the managerial classes deem as enemies of like this political order yeah it's just like a sign of heightened political polarization that i believe is is like baked in the cake and it's going to be a fixture of politics in the the decades to come and i think this is just only like the first like just the latest chapter of a protracted cold civil war if you will like what i'm thinking is that the FBI is licking their chops right now because they know. I bet they're even using Joe Biden memes right now to galvanize some kind of dumb kid from rural Michigan into taking action and um, 
I feel like you're gonna get some more spook infiltrations of these dumb mm. groups in in like rural areas where you know they they convince some idiot to do something really really dumb. I I can definitely see that coming. Like they've done, did to Muslims for for a decade. You kind of see that with that one group. Uh, what was it called? A uh, Patriot Front or whatever that looks like really sketchy. Those guys that would just uh, show up in like masks and have like that uh, patriotic attire and all that. I suspect there's probably some infiltration there and there's going to be other groups that are going to pop up like that. I also do believe that there will be uh, situations as well that will look like gang violence, but it's really like partisans versus partisan type of exchanges also pop off as well. That'll be much more organic because one thing that we're witnessing right now is a collapse of like the liberal hegemonic order at the domestic level with people losing faith in the federal government so they will turn to extra political means i.e street violence to settle disputes and all that you know what's funny about the patriot front they're either fbi informants or they're so lame that everyone thinks that they're fbi because you you couldn't possibly be that lame yeah those groups are just like weird because they're always trying to they always like think that <clears throat> we're like back in like interwar like europe they use like the all like the like fascist aesthetics and all of that and it's so played out that yeah it's their their entire ap appearance just screams fed or as you said they're just like lame that everybody just thinks they're fed no one takes that stuff seriously I do believe that there will be some clashes, though, with other groups, if, especially if the federal government takes this domestic war on terror seriously and starts cracking down. Because there are a lot of people, I believe, that are losing faith in the political process, and they're just itching to push back in some form or the other. What I think is going to happen, and this is this almost sounds like a parody, but I think an act of violence is going to break out in one of these, um, like one of these, um, like trans shows or something. And yes, you're going to see like you're going to, the first shots of the of the second American Civil War will be at a drag queen story hour. Like, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I see, first yeah. shots of of, of American <laughs> Civil War two will be outside of a drag queen story hour. It's that's it's very so crazy. conceivable. Yes. And f it's, yeah, I could see like somebody like at one of um those like groomer like uh protests as well um definitely snap and do something like that. I mean, the level of polarization is getting pretty out of control in in many respects. I I think it's going to be a culture war related issue these days. Other issues are not going to be as like salient but it, it it is like an existential political struggle between the so-called like red and blue tribes <clears throat> yeah it's it's just so strange like i don't know outside i live in the most liberal place on planet earth in, in park slope in brooklyn I, I don't think you could really name uh more kind of liberal progressive areas in the world honestly and i mean for the most part man like 
you know, I'm not a, a left-winger or a progressive, but I get along with pretty much everyone and don't have any negative inter- interactions with anyone. Like, I can kind of live in this society and kind of... I can kind of adapt to wherever I live, personally. Um, and it makes me wonder, like, how much is this extremism? Is it being pushed online? Because I think most people... They do sort of just get along. I, I think a lot of this culture war stuff is manufactured to, to um, really just drive people who are already, you know, kind of socially uh, on the crazier side to an extreme point. Yes, it's supposed to be an extremely online culture where you see a lot of this go down. I tend to think it's really confined to a lot of Zoomers as well. If you look at both like the Zoomer right and the Zoomer left, as where you see for, like the most like, extreme forms of polarization. Like on one hand, you see total tankies. And then on the other, you'll, you'll see these really not sock fascist adjacent type of like right wing accounts pop up and Really, it's more, in my opinion, of like a sign of like the growing atomization and disintegration of like civil society where these people under under normal circumstances would be like participating in like sports, church or some other hobby where they would be channeling their energy in a much more productive fashion. Because I do live also like in a very liberal, progressive area and I do yoga and all that stuff and interact with people that are like much more like significantly to my cultural left, but I get along just fine. And yeah, it's to me like really just like maladjusted people that are just online for too long. Yeah. And I mean, I can even sense it. Like I can feel myself being pulled in. If something crazy on a news happens and I jump on Twitter, I can kind of feel the addictive nature of social media kind of pulling me in. I'm like, oh man, like this is kind of getting me riled up to the point where I'll, I'll just have to delete my Twitter. Like that's why I, I try not to do that much Twittering because I feel like it's honestly just really destructive to your mental health in the, yes. long, in the long run. Like it's, it, and I honestly have felt myself just like getting migraines after going, scrolling through Twitter and look at all the propaganda from just, you know, propaganda from the left, propaganda from the right. And I'm just like, man, I can't, I can't do this. And for people who are just not emotionally uh, mature enough to kind of deal with politics, I think it really harms them in a significant way to a point where, you know, they are, um, you know, kind of wishing death on their enemies openly. <laughs> but at the same time, the U.S., we don't have some martial quality anymore. You know, people always like to compare what's going on in the U.S. with the polarization with, you know, the Weimar Republic. But the difference is, you know, there was like five to ten guys getting murdered every single day during those days, during the, the polarization of that society. Um, and, and the guys who, and, and all these guys on both sides were World War One vets. You know, they, they had already have gone through, you know, they were already, you know, martial people. We don't have that. Like, we have a bunch of people who, I think the majority of American men have not been in a fist fight, which is a good thing to not be exposed to violence. But to think that they're going to rise to an occasion and kind of jump into some civil war scenario is just complete LARPing. 
Yeah, I think that you're seeing that's really being channeled through more like online harassment, doxing, and like the cancellation of people like at their workplace. Like if you were like involved, if you said some like mean stuff online, you might get like a Twitter mob that'll report you, they'll report your place of employment and say like you're like a bigot or whatever and you lose your job the next day. But you don't really see this type of violence that of like previous eras because of just like the simple fact that as you mentioned there there a lot of people don't have that type of martial background and people prefer to just stay online and people just aren't are simply not in shape either like with the type of obesity rates you see in the u.s like like people running straight to war is like the last thing they'll be doing and and to for, to some extent, it, um, it, this is kind of beneficial. This is a form of controlled polarization that it that is beneficial to the present managerial elite because it's pretty easy to tame for, for the simple fact that people are just not going out on the streets to wreak havoc and do all that or like really like challenge the state's monopoly of on violence. The though um, you may see some cases like like 2020 where you had like the writing and stuff like that but it generally dissipates pretty fast but uh i do believe that you're going to see more of like a kind of cultural collapse and a like a, a gradual process of that like as society continues bowling alone if you will and social capital decreases but I'm not very convinced you're going to see like a conventional civil war scenario like some people are saying with like two official armies. You may see something that could resemble more like the Irish Troubles. But yeah. um, even then, it's just like really difficult to see a lot of like a really atomized society. Um, see people just carry out kind of like coordinated attacks like that because there's very like with civil society dying a lot of people just don't really have this the same type of dedication or discipline to join groups that are fighting like multi really like multi-generational battles for like a much higher cause what i want to talk to you about today is um so we've been talking for you know years now and you know when i first started speaking to you you were um you know libertarian you were writing for Mises a lot I mean and you still do write for Mises right yeah I, I've been focusing more on my Substack and then also my yeah. podcast as well but I am going to be writing more and focusing some more on revisionist history there actually well over and, and I and I love your podcast by the way it's one of the few podcasts that I listen to uh you know, whenever it comes out, I'll listen to your shows and, and I and I subscribe to your Substack, and um, I, I think everything that you do is really great, especially the work that you've been putting out putting out over the past uh, you know year or so. And but I, I've sensed like kind of a political evolution with you, where you've kind of moved on from libertarianism, and now you're more of a right wing populist. So I would love to. I mean, I don't know. Is that a fair? Would you call say that a, that's a fair label? Yeah, I definitely describe myself broadly as like a right-wing populist, a cultural nationalist. Yeah, and yeah, I reject like universalist ideologies, whether they're liberalism, neoliberalism, 
conservatism, neoconservatism. And I do retain some libertarian views with regards to the managerial state and the federal government's like encroachments on people's daily lives when it comes to like the freedom of association and also the federal government's usurpation of traditional functions that states, counties, and municipalities used to have as well. But I'm definitely much more skeptical of corporate power. That's one thing that um, I would say that has changed in my views that would put me at odds with some libertarians. And I, I'll just say this. I've always had some doubts with the overall philosophy because of the fact that I got into politics largely due to Pat Buchanan. So I've residually held some nationalist views with regards to tariffs, immigration, and all of that. But I generally do still believe in a very like non-interventionist foreign policy, <clears throat> a relatively lighter state in many respects. And also, I'm still pretty much against the entire monetary system the, the thing i would say that's really made me much more <clears throat> i'd say culturally nationalist is i tend to oppose a lot of the stuff like the that the <clears throat> the the woke crowd and just like the broader left is pushing on in, on social affairs and i also would be I'm much more amenable to using state governments um, as vehicles to check a lot of corporations, spe specifically big tech, which is pretty much an, an arm of the national security state um, to really rein these institutions in. Uh, I don't really have like the, I would say one of the biggest changes in my views as well is that I don't really have the the same worship of corporations that I used to have when I was more of a doctrinaire libertarian. Now I've become more nuanced in that there's a lot of corporations that I believe are actually very much part of the regime. They are like the enemy. They work to undermine like the historic American nation and they often participate in a lot of the domestic crackdowns and even the foreign escapades that we see abroad and i tend to see the regime not just as like government versus individuals but really it's a consortium of government agencies corporations the corporate press and the ngo networks that work against like the interests of like middle america is that does that kind of reflect like the general view the the populist right is such a vague thing that there's a lot yeah. of uh different views i guess the libertarian or, or or my uh basic kind of view on class which i feel is like the standard libertarian uh view is that you know that it's not unlike the you know the socialist who think it's you know the, the capitalist and the worker really um you know i look at it as like those who are productive and then those who um are you know making their money off coercion and then i would lump in you know the corporations who are using the government as their own personal ATM as, you know, part of the coercion class.
that distinction i'd say it's it's not that bad i just don't think it's fully it's like complete because there are very productive people that align themselves with this broader regime that i believe is hostile towards my interests and also like other middle american interests and that's been a dilemma for a lot of libertarians because you can definitely make the case that big tech platforms are very efficient and they've allowed for the proliferation of our ideas. But at the same time, they are very willing to enforce a lot of the agenda that you see emanating from like DC and other like think tanks as well. And they ultimately function almost like a Pinkerton type of police force for them when it comes to policing speech and other discourse that the regime finds to be hostile towards its interests. But I, I've really moved on from a lot of like the dichotomies that you see with conservatism Inc. and the libertarian space because those, those movements have been very incestuous, uh, especially during the Cold War era. But now that we're like well past the end of the Cold War, <clears throat> I think there has emerged like a new type of political struggle between the managerial classes that dominate a lot of like the urban centers in the US, especially like coastal areas and middle America. And that's where you see populism, um, right wing populism come in. But there are some issues, in my opinion, with the right-wing populist movement because it's still very incoherent and it, it also lacks a lot of institutions, which makes it very easy to co-opt by a lot of very opportunistic neoconservatives and other people in the conservative establishment that will just don populist aesthetics. But really, when it comes to the substance and policies they promote, it's more of the same that we see. So you're seeing that play out and you're also seeing to the collapse kind of like the of the, like the old left as well with now pretty much mainstream liberals and even so-called progressives just towing the line on hot button issues such as like the Russo-Ukrainian conflict and aligning themselves with the national security state which decades ago would have been almost unheard of but that's kind of the bizarro world political climate that we're in so j just to pull this back so managerial class um i'm not sure if everyone's gonna know what that term is and you know i've started it's, it comes from james burnham who i mean that's his probably his most famous book you know the managerial revolution he's like an interesting figure and i'm still trying to like kind of get my opinion on him because I'm I'm reading Justin Romando's um his book about like Garrett Garrett and and uh John T. Flynn and um how those guys were rooted out of the the right wing movement after uh the after World War Two and um that's where like James Burnham in a national review took over the the intellectual circles of the American right. Have you ever read that? I've read excerpts of it, but never read it in full. Well, they, they kind of look at James Burnham as, as at least Romando kind of looks at him as an enemy. You know, he calls him America's first neoconservative. And 
I'm reading, I read The Managerial Revolution, and I'm, I'm reading his book, The Machiavellians, right now. And, you know, I have to say, I largely agree, agree with most of his premises in the book. Um, his, in The Managerial Revolution, he makes a lot of predictions that don't come true, but his general premise of, like, the capitalists are no longer the people in power, and the managers are the ones who are going to take over and, and basically run society. I haven't read Burnham's work, but I am acquainted with some of the concepts because I've read like some of the works of his acolytes or people who have been inspired by him, such as like Sam Francis and Paul Gottfried. Burnham is a really interesting character because he was a CIA spook and also an ex-Trotskyite. Um, his views were really eclectic, actually. For one, he was actually very sympathetic to the pro-Palestinian cause in the 1950s and 60s. And this was a time when also the, uh, the American conservative movement was not monolithically pro-Zionist either. And you had like a lot more diversity of foreign policy thought at that time within conservative circles. Though Burnham was a major Cold War hawk, especially, and I think that continued until his death. But he, his strength was mostly in explaining how the, the New Deal transfo fundamentally transformed the U.S. and consolidated this managerial state where the traditional Republican model of governance and even like uh, of like democracy was largely shifted towards a more bureaucratic model where politicians matter less and less over the course of time. And instead you see more of a permanent ruling class of like bureaucrats and even like NGO pol um, policymakers that basically set the tempo for all policy that is enacted in DC. That's how like you could see this with like tr the Trump administration. For example, you had a guy that was ostensibly a so-called like America first restrainer but irrespective of his time in office, he was almost being undermined at almost every turn by people in the permanent bureaucracy and a lot of like the picks he made too, because those people are so well entrenched there that they, irrespective of who's in office, they can have their way. And I think that's one thing that Burnham was able to point out. Though <clears throat> I'm of the view that his successors like Sam Francis and Paul Gottfried and some of like the the paleo conservatives did a much better job in synthesizing what Burnham wrote about and creating like an alternative to what is like the globalist American empire because Burnham was still very much a creature of the Cold War and definitely took more of the Washington line on that issue. But when you have people like San Francis Gottfried and even Murray Rothbard as well on the outside, looking at things more soberly, you were, they were able to build like a better alternative to explaining what's actually going on and 
and what like the kind of solution is that we need to bring some order to the U.S. and bring a lot of like in like the excesses of the present like <clears throat> warfare slash managerial state that we live under. So I'm no expert on Rothbard. I've read a couple of his books, but I've never read any of his like his major works for like, you know, like For a New Liberty or I've just read like chapters of, of his books. But, you know, from what I've um, I actually read um, The Betrayal of the American Right, which is act, which is kind of acts like his own autobiography. But he w- was turning more um, kind of paleo towards yes. his death. Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Like his views were, had had changed drastically. I know a lot of other, like a lot of libertarians, um, kind of complained about that. I've heard some people. Um, I had a guy on my show, Stephen Carson, argues that Rothbard's views really didn't change so much. It was mostly his strategies that changed, because he's always been kind of on the cultural right because he he believes in very fundamental right-wing principles of natural hierarchies order and all of that but he did spend a good deal of the 60s and 70s trying to do outreach with the new left on the war issues but it became kind of clear to him that after the vietnam war that a lot of mainstream liberals were able to co-opt a lot of the new left and channel their energy into causes that promoted like multiculturalism and really a lot of like the predecessors towards like the Washington consensus that consolidated in the 90s. So he started looking for other groups to partner with and eventually stumbled upon a lot of the paleoconservatives from Paul Gottfried, Sam Francis, and all of them. And he started working more with them. And I think he started emphasizing more about like the protection of like American national identity. And he also espoused a lot more traditional values as opposed to just being exclusively focused on economics. Though I would still say that even towards his death, Rothbard was a pretty strict libertarian when it's all said and done. It's just his views became more nuanced and he started interacting more with people in the paleoconservative movement as opposed to people on the left. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches... April 9th. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So it's interesting because, you know, we were talking before about, like, the right-wing populism being co-opted at the federal level. And, you know, I see that too, especially when it comes to foreign policy. Like, Mike Pompeo is is like considered um i guess a maga guy or a right wing or a right wing populist or he's or he's supposed to represent well first of all before i get ahead of myself there's like kind of this notion that um right wingers have made this huge change on foreign policy and are now like super woken up to you know like foreign interventions and they're strict non-interventionist i agree that they're better and there are you know influential people who are on the american right wing who are who are who are solid on foreign policy some who are have you know major voices like Tucker Carlson who can be a mixed bag but overall I think he's you know definitely a net positive but I think the 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 majority of of the American right still is or the plurality of the American right maybe they're not the majority anymore but one of the most powerful groups is is boomer right wingers sitting on their couch <laughs> watching you know the watching golf talking about how millennials don't pull their weight well if and those guys at, aren't those guys did not evolve on foreign policy we should have just bombed putin like that's that's kind of the general attitude of that group they're not like oh man we should have thought about nato expansion so, they're like oh if trump was president he would have just bombed putin like that's kind of the general their understanding they they just see kind of a republican strong democrat weak Indeed, that type of mindset is very prominent in the right-wing media space, especially because those people are just plugged into the to the conservatism ink grid. And when you actually look at institutional control, whether it's like the media, the think tanks, and just the number count of the reps in Congress, MAGA, uh, any type of like right-wing populist that's <clears throat> espousing like restrained foreign policy views is a minority you just see it in the vote counts with like the sanctions on russia like there's barely any republicans opposing it's generally just like thomas massey paul gosar uh and andy biggs and like a few other reps doing that and the media ecosystem is still largely neoconservative neoconservative adjacent or just like super hawk on those on uh, issues like that you're, you, where you're seeing some changes are largely among younger millennials and Zoomers who are becoming much more skeptical of a lot of neoconservatism, uh, neoconservative 
precepts and all that, but they haven't come into political age yet. It's really a generational thing at the end of the day, because once these people start insinuating themselves into positions of influence, whether it's in the corporate space, media, politics or whatever, you may start seeing a change in the direction of the GOP. But for now, I've argued that there really isn't any credible populist organizations that are able to churn out a lot of professionals, much less politicians that can shake things up. It's really going to be a multi-decade struggle in my view. So how would you, so there's no like, and you said this before, the right has no institutions really, or they're not, and they, there's a couple of institutions, but the institutions that we know that are on the right, like, you know, the Heritage Foundation, or, you know, these think tanks, and I don't yeah. know if you consider Fox News, like, they're they're largely kind of, I don't think their views are very different at all no. from what they were 15 years ago. They just kind of accepted Trump as a vehicle to get in power, and, you know, they'll, they'll ex- exploit that, but... I mean, even Trump himself, I don't think Trump really was Trump. I don't think anyone really thinks that Trump was grounded in any type of philosophy. Like Trump wasn't reading Paul Godfrey. No, definitely not. (laughs) I'm I'm sure Trump did not know who doesn't know who Paul Godfrey is. Trump, Trump, I don't think he was really reading anyone. Like everything was like pure instinct. And like, you know, these words are stupid. Like that's that's kind of. Yeah, he called Pat Buchanan actually an anti-Semite too. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah. He called. I mean, see here. Here's where I'm struggling with just the overall trying to grasp this, and maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm just totally um, on a fool's errand trying to understand the right wing populist movement because it's so decentralized and because there's no there's really no kind of not just a power center. There's no power centers really. Like there's it's just so vague. Um, I'm You're really trying to that. kind of understand understand what draws what what is like the umbrella that kind of makes somebody a right-wing populist well when you saw trump's campaign in the primaries in 2015 he ran on what was a pat buchanan like type of issues on foreign policy restraint immigration reduction and protection and a protectionist slash nationalist economic policy that drew a lot of the populist right to his campaign at that point but once trump was in office he was kind of a mixed bag on all those issues he governed really like this mix of like of a nixonian republican and kind of a reaganite and you saw this with like the tax cut policies and some deregulation policies here and there. Um, he still maintained a lot of like the US's hegemonic um, military aspirations as seen with the aid to Ukraine, the Soleimani assassination, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran, and then also um, a more hawkish policy towards China Though, it, one thing that's interesting about his China policy is that it was much more trade-centric. He wasn't as big in terms of creating like this AUKUS alliance network. He was more of a unilateralist, but to me, the 
um, the right-wing populist movement is kind of more of, represents more of a dissident sect of the right that emerged after the Cold War that has begun to question like the U.S.'s imperial enterprises and its very activist domestic policies too. And they've gravitated towards several people, starting with Buchanan. Some gravitated towards Ross Perot. Then you saw them gravitate to Ron Paul and then Donald Trump because all of these candidates in some shape or form ran on an issue or a host of issues that galvanize these people. The problem is in every case, they've never been able to really institutionalize and create a kind of political network that churns out politicians, journalists, and other influential figures that can change the course of politics and really overthrow the current like neoconservative class that dominates the GOP. That's like the big struggle in my view in post-war, post-Cold War era politics on the right is that the conservative establishment ranging from your super hawks, neocons, and just normie conservatives still hold a lot of sway in the party, whereas the populists tend to be more marginalized. And what's even more insidious is that establishments, certain factions of it, can get pretty creative and you adopt populist aesthetics to kind of contain any insurgent populist movement and make sure to preserve um, keep them preserve their power without having to worry about the populace overthrowing them but it there's a it's a it's gonna be a um it's gonna be a tough road ahead for a lot of these populists because they're working at a disadvantage when they go up against the average like run-of-the-mill republican due to the fact that these republicans have much more resources, better networks, and name recognition, and much more media clout too, when it comes to propagating their message. I haven't really been looking at like the Republican primaries, but just from my um, kind of the bird's eye view, it seems like the at the very least the Trump backed candidates are the ones that are doing better. Am I am I reading that right, or is that yes? They, they yeah they are okay though. I would add some caveats that some of these Trump candidates, um, even then, they're not like monolithically on a kind of like America first wavelength because there are some that, for example, like J.D. Vance, he's actually pretty solid on foreign policy. He was one of like the only people in the Ohio Republican primary that said like the idea of establishing a no-go zone um, in Ukraine is just insane. And he and I think that's one reason why he came out on top during those primaries by offering a restrained foreign policy. But then there's other Republicans that I have suspicions are really wolves in sheep's clothing when it comes to their foreign policy views. Because if you just look at who's like donating to their campaigns and the, and the people that are gravitating towards them, you can figure out that a lot of them are really just populist in name only. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because I've argued that 
a lot of like the neoconservative agenda is insanely unpopular if you look at it like electorally from like the host of issues they promote from their foreign policy interventionism to a lot of their pro-corporate policies there um, a lot of republicans are really unpopular you could see the emergence of more populist leaning type of republicans that are like a reflect a trumpism after trump type of dynamic you uh that's that's already kind of present with ron DeSantis, and he has a lot of question marks as well i've talked about this before but you'll probably see more of that or you'll just see as i mentioned also republicans that use populist aesthetics to try to get into office because there is a pretty strong recognition among GOP elites now that the Bush era of politics just is not like a winning strategy of like appealing to any longer in the GOP. They're they're going to have to get much more creative and they do have a pretty easy rubric to follow in the populist model it will at least with regards to the marketing, the legislative matters, that's a whole different story because they're very likely going to backstab a lot of their constituencies on that front. But I mean, we we are definitely heading for some interesting times as far as the political realignment that we're seeing take place in the U.S. goes. Yeah. And I mean, I have no idea what to expect these midterms. A couple of months ago, it seemed like there was going to be a big red wave, but now the polling data shows that the Republicans might lose House seats. I know polling is pretty unreliable, um, especially over the past, like, I don't know, six years. It's been very unreliable. I tend to believe that there is like a very strong degree of polarization in the U.S. that's baked in the cake where neither party can really establish like kind of like monolithic rule like the way you saw in the era of good feelings when the jeffersonian democrats dominated the jeffersonian like republicans um dominated that time or like the new deal coalition as well that dominated from like the 30s to the 60s that kind of politics is largely has gone out the window due to like the hyper polarized state of affairs we live in so you're going to see much more competitive elections a lot of divided rule in congress as well it's likely that republicans may keep may take um the house but with very like razor thin margins but democrats make gains in the senate as well there's some projections but polling in especially in rust belt states is pretty sketchy so who knows I, as I've said before, I tend to believe that Reaganite and neoconservative policy proposals, especially on the economic and foreign policy fronts, are just electorally toxic for Republicans. And the more populist Republicans get on on immigration issues, foreign policy as well, and some culture war issues, they can get people on their side but it becomes like it's really like i said it it's something that it's going to take a while because 
the average like Republican candidate that's running for office is very is very much informed by a lot of boomer media content or content that just regurgitates very played out Cold War era tropes and when they're just out on the campaign trail or doing media rounds, their message is just really out of touch with what a lot of voter constituencies want. Because want. if one of the biggest themes about the Trump phenomenon is the fact that he was able to tap into a lot of politically apathetic, low-frequency voters, even Democrat voters, specifically former union members, blue-collar voters that have been alienated by the political system by focusing in on trade, immigration, and foreign policy. Those type of voters are not your average Republican voter. And in fact, I actually do believe a lot of non-Trump Republicans are not going to have the same type of success he did with those voters. So I think that what we're seeing in the GOP right now is more of a protracted interfactional struggle that the present GOP ruling class is winning pretty decisively for now, but I do believe it'll start changing once the millennials and Zoomers start coming of age because a lot of these people, they just don't really care much for a lot of these appeals to Reaganism and any just Cold War era tropes, they, they're going to be talking more about populist issues that span like immigration to questioning a nation building abroad. And that's really embodied by Tucker Carlson, despite some of his flaws. He is like one of the few figures in the corporate press that is shaking up like discussions and is attacking many sacred cows allegedly and i kind of do believe this is what happened is that he uh it was him and, and doug mcgregor were the ones who convinced trump not to bomb iran a couple of years ago when iran shot down that drone over the strait of harmuz um and it was it was tucker carlson who had doug mcgregor on his show saying it would be dumb to to uh, engage or, or, you know, engage militarily with Iran. And basically, Doug McGregor was like, I know Trump wouldn't do that because he's not an idiot, right? And they were talking directly to Trump. I mean, I think that's exactly why Tr uh, Tucker Carlson had him on his show to directly talk to Trump with one of his most, you know, one of the most influential guys in his circle telling him not to do it. So things like that are, are awesome. Like, that's an awesome thing to do. Like, he prevented something from really escalating uh, um, into, like, a really, really deadly, in a deadly way. Sometimes he says stuff that are dumb, and so does, so does every everyone. But he's largely been good on, um, when during the Afghan pullout, the first person I think he had on his show was Andrew Basevich was Andrew Basevich, then he had Danny Davis, then he had Glenn Grenwald, then he had all these great like former military guys who uh, who have dissent who are uh, uh, dissenters from from US foreign policy 
um, like the best possible voices you could bring to speak to conservatives about foreign policy and, and kind of getting their head to think the right way and making them think like, yeah, this was a big fool's errand, um, this war in Afghan- Afghanistan. So I can't like, those are, those are awesome things to be putting in to right wing politics. Like, would you rather have right, the, the standard right winger be like, Hey, let's continue these cold war policies. That's dumb. That's disastrous. And I mean, look what the Bush years gave us when, when that was the prevalent and, um, you know, the, the right wing mentality was I need to be big and tough. And that basically destroyed the right. It destroyed the right. And, um, I think we're, we're we're still living with the consequences of that. Yeah, actually, I I, I want to talk about Douglas McGregor as well because I've been of the view that he's been one of the most important foreign policy spokesmen of the past like decade or so on the right because he knows how to, given his military background, he and the gravitas that he is able to command. It's just um, he's able to reach out to a lot of right wingers that would normally fall for very hawkish rhetoric and all of that. And I actually do believe that he has made Tucker's views on the China question also more nuanced because I, I remember that episode where McGregor appeared on Tucker's show to talk about Taiwan and Tucker actually sounded like more reasonable and I think he has impacted him on that in that regard because that's been one fair critique of Tucker is that he is a China hawk but I'm um I would say like even myself um I'm not I would say I'm like a China hawk but like lowercase in terms of like trade and immigration from there really i'm more of an immigration hawk broadly speaking but um i do not want any type of military conflict in that regard and there is a species of right-wing populists that are more nationalist with regards to china on economics and migratory policy but when it comes to like military they take the old right position they don't want to be in an entanglement there Unfortunately, a lot of the acceptable right and some elements of the so-called populism inc, they take very much like a neoconservative line there. And that's going to be one of like the bigger dividing lines, I believe. And you may start seeing a lot of falling out as well of those people. And I actually, Tucker, I've heard rumors too that when Tucker took a really strong anti-interventionist stance with the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, some of these entities like the National Conservatism Conference and all that, they started distancing themselves from Tucker because he used to speak. I think he spoke at the inaugural event there. But yeah, there is going to be some, some, some conflicts, I believe, within that populist movement where you will have some of the people that are much more radical that have a kind of like fuck the system approach where they challenge like everything from like mass migration to the U.S.'s military presence abroad and which will inevitably butt heads with 
your typical invade the world, invite the world hawks in the GOP establishment. You're going to see a lot of that. You're probably going to see some schisms emerge too. But it's really, this is nothing new. This it took place in during the Cold War where, going back to Rothbard, Rothbard used to write on occasion for National Review but was eventually kicked out because he took very dovish stances on foreign policy. And even like the, the Birch Society too were largely excommunicated from a lot of establishment conservative rags too. So you're going to see a lot of this play out in real time in the next decades or so. What, what do you know about the old right? Or, you know, the, I, I don't know. So Murray Rothbard writes a lot about the old right. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's like something that is overplayed or if like, if it, if it, if he makes it a bigger deal than it actually was, but you know, these writers who basically had their origins in, in uh, opposing FDR and the New Deal, who were very skeptical about entering World War II, but, you know, they obviously they joined the war, the war bag and after Pearl Harbor. But after World War II, they reverted back to like, OK, let's try to kind of iron out uh, a peaceful solution with the Soviet Union. Like, let's not go crazy. What is your take on that era of politics in the 1930s and 40s and I guess even the 50s. The old right <clears throat> were also pretty eclectic because you had, it was like a coalition of people of like Northeastern intellectuals that were very disenchanted with the way the country was going, especially after World War One, and the rise of the progressive administrative state, and like the creation of the Federal Reserve, the income tax, and nonstop wars abroad really got these people worried about the U.S. And this in this coalition, you also had a lot of Southern agrarians who. We're also skeptical of like the centralization that was taking place of the U.S. government. Though those Southern agrarians were more skeptical of capitalism in general, whereas a lot of the old right that was like based out of like the Northeast were influenced by more of like the um, American anarchistic individualism of the 19th century that was like really embodied by people like Lysander Spooner. But these people generally were brought together by the idea that the U.S. was just turning into an empire and really distancing itself from its Republican roots. The old right was actually pretty prominent in the 30s up until like the 50s you could see them be published like even from like the saturday evening post to i believe even newsweek like henry hazlitt for example of economics in one the author of economics in one lesson was incredibly prolific for his time and he was a pretty staunch libertarian and friend of murray Rothbard, who was definitely on the old right 
but <clears throat> over time the they these people were just being leapfrogged by the emerging like neoconservative movement and a lot of that was just owing to the fact that the neocons were very smart in how they built their power not just politically but also in like the media spaces academia and business and they just basically out hustled a lot of people um it wasn't until like really the 80s that they started to shine the old right i did do think had some influence though you had people like warren buffett's father howard buffett who was a congressman that represented that kind of tradition even robert taft too was a big nato skeptic in his day and it would have been an interesting alternative history to have seen taft win the republican nomination instead of eisenhower but <clears throat> A lot of it's also just the fact that um, once, like, you saw the progressive era um, um, <clears throat> crystallize and consolidate, really, with the New Deal and then, like, the subsequent civil rights revolution of the 1960s, it became, like, next to impossible for the... <clears throat> old right to really resurge as like a political force it would just be confined to some book clubs and even like think tanks and an occasional politician that would get elected at the federal level but it's been in a kind of weakened state since the end of world war ii but it has seen a resurgence obviously with people like pat buchanan running ron paul running and even to some extent with Donald Trump too, because a lot of the issues that Trump ran on were stuff what animated a lot of the old right and the paleoconservative movement as well. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday and each one is five minutes or less. So you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you think there is such a um, fear? Because I feel like there's there really is a fear of, of right-wing populists. Yeah, the populist right, the issues that they're running on, like foreign policy restraint um, or restraint, uh, restricting immigration and reassessing trade 
are like holy sacraments of the managerial order. I'd also add in the rollback of the civil rights anti-discrimination uh, anti state as well because that's been kind of like part of like the liberal hegemonic project that manifests itself both domestically and internationally. And this project has been something in the making since the end of World War II. And they what they see in the populist right is a movement that wants to rewind ultimately, I'd say reset things to bring it back to the U.S.'s more Republican roots where it was a much more federalist system that had strong degrees of localism and you also saw the freedom of association be highly respected. There was also considerably more economic freedom as well. And for these people, any type of movement that spans like the paleo conservative spectrum to populist spectrum and even like paleo libertarians and libertarian spectrum are just like threats to it and that's why they go out of their way to try to demonize these movements co-opt them and defang them because at the end of that like if the populace were to get in power and start implementing their agenda you would see a lot of these people these people out of work because you would the the administrative state would be put on a diet, the warfare state would be put on a diet, and there would just this entire cottage industry of government jobs and NGO jobs, which would drastically be reduced once you have like a much smaller state. It, and it's not just it's not just the right, it's also the populist left. Um, but I feel like the 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 populist left it's easier to subvert. Um, didn't Murray Rothbard write that uh, progressivism was actually a right-wing plot? Basically, he wrote that um, it was a way to placate communism, like from like real labor movements from taking power. So progressivism was pushed to, um, you know, come to a settlement between, um, you know, uh, laissez-faire, uh, capitalism and and um, and uh, you know the, the mixed economy that's where it comes from i'm probably butchering this hypothesis but um i've um, yeah i've heard this hypothesis as well from some people i've heard it from some marxists that they argue that social democracy really was what destroyed um any prospects for a lot of marxist leninist groups and other communist movements to take root in the west that it was kind well, of a, like an elite type of project done to co-op um, rising labor movements. Well, do you know who Matt Ho is? He's um, a whistleblower, an Afghan. Uh, um, he was in the State Department. And he was a whistleblower on the Afghan war back in 2010. So he is um, so he's on Scott Horton's show a lot. He uh, came out in 2010 and basically he was working for the State Department and then previously he was a Marine Corps captain and he came out and said, okay, all this, this, he came out against the surge mainly and he was like, he was, he was, uh, you know, writing articles about how the surge was a terrible idea and uh, he is a uh, leftist, he's a leftist socialist. 
So he was running for, and I interviewed him the other day or a couple of weeks ago. He was running for the Green Party ticket for a North Carolina Senate seat. And the Democrats committed fraud to get him off the ballot. What they did was they impersonated Green Party uh, party officials and they called their uh, their voters to sign a petition to remove Matt from the ballot. So they were actively committing fraud, pretending like they were Green Party representatives, but they were actually Democrats. Wow, it was it was he and he just won his law his lawsuit, so he's back on the ballot right now. But it's just a crazy story, and. I think you see it on both directions where there's just this instinct to um, really just to, you know, inter-party, um, like you, you see the Republicans, you know, the power, the kind of um, both, both movements are, are largely co-opted or there's this large attempt to be, to be co-opted and um, it, it's, I think right now though the left is just completely marginalized. Like I've made this point before where I think that for the most part like leftist movements are, are almost non-existent in the US where it's almost all become just kind of like, you know, woke identity politics stuff and it's it's kind of like oh uh, they're they're not even close to any of what any of their demands um but I think you see it both on the right where, but right now I think the right wing kind of populist wing is a little less marginalized because they do have some major voices in the media in Tucker Carlson. And they've obviously just had a president and there's like candidates who are getting elected to, uh, you know, federal government positions. But it's just the, um, it's just interesting to see the length that they'll, that, um, that will that um, people will go through to either completely marginalize or or subvert these movements. Mm -hmm. There, there's a lot of that taking place, and it, in my opinion, with regards to the left, they it, it has fundamentally transformed from a movement that you would say was more labor focused and a bit class reductionist now to just identity pol um focus on identity politics multiculturalism and just weird forms of like social deviancy but what is interesting though on foreign policy they are almost like homogenous on certain issues and they so very much support the liberal imperialist project and yeah identity politics is very malleable and a lot of like the ruling class likes that because you can use this identity politics to create a form of like controlled polarization and divert attention away from some very relevant issues ranging from foreign policy to also a lot of corporate misbehavior as well. It's the perfect like divide and rule strategy too because if you read like stories in a lot of major companies that have questionable labor practices, they all they'll say this that having like a more like wokeified, diverse workforce 
creates much less worker solidarity and it's much easier for these corporations to get away with all sorts of crazy stuff at their workers expense wow that's interesting i've never i've never heard that before but yeah i think there was an amazon case i think it was like amazon or whole foods where there was like a memo that went viral about that i forget but um i've talked to some uh, Marxist, post-leftists, and other people on that the dissident left space that talk about this issue that when you have like a much more like diverse workforce or just like really a workforce that's <clears throat> absorbed with woke politics, it's going to be m um, much harder to build like an esprit de corps among the workers to form like a union or or just like do like ad hoc like demonstrations against questionable labor practices and um, abusive bosses and stuff like that. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. I never thought about that. I need to look for that. Um, all right, we're getting at nine o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Um, we're gonna wrap this thing up. Just let everyone know where they can find your work, uh, Substack, your podcast, uh, where you write for. Well, I'm mostly writing on my Substack, Jose Nino Unfiltered, <clears throat> JOSBCF.com. That's where you can find my written content. I also have my podcast, El Nino Speaks, there, but you can also find El Nino Speaks on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as well. And I have a political strategy newsletter called The Nino File on Patreon too and yeah i occasionally will uh will write for like mises.org not as much as before but i i do intend to write more there but i'm predominantly writing on big league politics these days and i do write on a weekly basis for geopolitics and empire as well yeah check out jose's stuff i i, I really enjoy your podcast so um i recommend uh everyone to to listen to it you there's there's very interesting guests on it uh so give it a listen and then make sure that you rate and review the podcast it is the number one way to support this show you can also join us on our slack or join us on patreon to get access to our slack and uh thank you for listening peace All right.